Shalom, this is Avigail. Today we begin our fourth unit in Parashat Ve'yashev, the story of Yehuda and Tamar, chapter 38. Last class, we we ended off with Yosef being sold to Potiphar in Egypt, and then our story shifts to the story of Yehuda and what's happening with his whereabouts in Canaan. Immediately following the story of Yehuda, today's story, chapter 39, verse 1, which is going to be tomorrow's class, is going to start off exactly where we ended off, yesterday so this is a today's unit is a very contained chapter and the question that we we will need to address shortly is why was the story of Yehuda inserted into the story of Yosef being sold to Egypt so let's begin chapter 38 verse 1 and it was at that time that Yehuda left his brothers and he went to set up his camp by an, an Adulamite man named Chira. Yehuda relocates to Adulam. Adulam is a Canaanite city not far from the, the Elah Valley, Emek Elah, which literally is about five minutes from where I'm sitting at this moment. Ibn Ezra tries to figure out when exactly the story had taken place, and Ibn Ezra argues very compelling arguments that the story could not have possibly taken place immediately following Yosef being sold. As a matter of fact, it probably started beforehand. And his calculation is very simple, and I, I'm going to try not to make things too complicated, but uh, in a nutshell, Yosef is going to be away from his family 22 years. From the time Yosef is sold to the time Yosef's brothers come down to Egypt and he reveals himself to his brothers, 22 years are going to pass. He's 17 years old when he's sold. He's 30 years old when he stands in front of Paro. Seven years of plenty are going to pass by. And an additional two years of famine till his brothers come and he reveals himself to his brothers. So he's 17 when he's sold. He's 39 when he's revealed to them. Um, possibly less, definitely not more. Maybe he wasn't sold when he was 17. Maybe he was 19 when he was 20. We don't know exactly. But definitely not more than 22 years. If Yehuda is, it leaves his brothers and this whole story that we're about to read now took place immediately following Yosef's, Yosef being sold, let's see what, what are the events that are going to happen to Yehuda, and is it possible that they happened within a time span of 22 years? Yehuda in this chapter is going to marry. Um, he's going to have three children. The two of those children are going to grow up and get married. They're going to die. He's going to end up having relations with Tamar. Tamar is going to have twins. By the time they go to Egypt, those twins have families of their own. Or at least we know of one of the twins that he has uh, his own two kids, Chetron and Chamul, sons of Peretz. So it's very unlikely that all these events could have possibly taken place within 22 years. For Yehuda to get married, have his own children, those children grow up, they get married, they die. Then Yehuda has, has relations with, with Tamar, 20, and they have twins. Those twins grow up, those twins get married. Peretz has his own children within 22 years. It's impossible. Therefore, he says this story must have taken place beforehand. Uh, and that Vayhi Ba'etahi is, is parallel to the story of Yosef. So perhaps a better way to explain Vayhi Ba'etahi is that this verse goes back to our opening verse of Parashat Vayeshev. Parashat Vayeshev opens up telling us where Yaakov had chosen to settle. Vayeshev Yaakov be'eretz megoi aviv be'eretz Kna'an, and Yaakov settled in the land of Kna'an. Immediately following that, we're told the story of where Yosef is going to end up selling. 
being uh, settling. And now we're told what happens with other members of the family. Yehuda, he's a significant member of the family. And so, at the time when Yaakov settled on the land, he we go into what happens with Yosef. And now we're going into that what's going ha- what's going to happen with Yehuda. Right. Then we're going to go back to the story of Yosef because eventually the entire family is going to regroup back in Egypt. And uh, so that's how that fits in very nicely. According to the Midrash, the story of Yehuda here is a result of the story of Yosef. When the brothers come home and they see how aggravated Yaakov is, they, t- they blame Yehuda and they tell Yehuda, Yehuda, why did you tell us to sell him? Had you told us to bring him home, we would have listened to you. The problem with that Midrash is it's clear that it doesn't fit in with the Pshat. The Pshat, the brothers aren't mentioned here. The Pshat, it doesn't say that the brothers did something, that they demoted him, rather that Yehuda himself had chosen to go down, but what the Midrash picks up, and this is true, is that there is a close, close, close connection between the story of Yehuda and the story of Yosef being Yosef being sold by his brothers, a connection which we're going to see as we read along. So let's continue verse 2. <laughs> So the story tells us, verse, back to verse 2, by Yehuda sees there in Adulam a daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. Shua is the name of the Canaanite. He takes her and he comes upon her and she's pregnant and she gives birth to a son and he names the son Er. She's, then she's pregnant again and she gives birth to another child and she names him Onan. It's interesting that we see Yehuda is marrying a Canaanite woman. She's a daughter of a Canaanite man. The Avot do not marry into the local population, the local Canaanite population. And yet, Yehuda does marry. We know later on that Shimon is also married to a Canaanite wife. It says we have in the list of those who, of, of the descendants that come to Egypt, it's, meant, it's recorded, Shaul ben HaKna'anit. So we know that the Shvatim are marrying Canaanite women. We also don't have any descriptions of the Shvatim uh, importing wives for themselves from outside Canaan. So why does this change in the time of the Shvatim? And I also want to add that we don't see that he is rebuked here, Yehuda, for his actions for marrying these Canaanite women. I believe the reason for this is that marrying into the local population, the local Canaanite population, in the time of the Avot was problematic because the Canaanites were the dominant culture in the land. And if Avraham's family would marry into a significant dominant family in Canaan, the Canaanite family would continue its influence and continue its cultural, theological influences upon the family of Avraham. And therefore, in order to avoid this influence, Avraham imports from outside, brings the woman from Haran to, to, to Canaan. Same thing goes with uh, the sons, with Yaakov, when he wants to get married. If Yitzchak's family is a small family, Yitzchak has two children, Yaakov and Esav. If Yaakov is to marry into the local population, the local population will have more of an influence on the wife and on the family. And in order to avoid such an influence, we bring an outsider. However, by the time Yaakov's children get married, Yaakov's family is a significant large family in their own right. They are a clan. Yaakov is going to say, I've crossed the Yarden on my own with my only me and my staff. And now I'm a, I'm, I have two large camps. It is a significantly large family, 
So we almost find them 70 people going down to Egypt. There's less of a concern of being influenced by the Canaanite population. I do want to make an observation that we'll give explanation meaning to later on, and that is that we don't know the name of the wife. We only know of that Yehuda marries. We only know the name of her father, Bat Ish Kanani, which is very strange. Usually we're told that the name of the woman that he is married, and we're less interested in the name of the woman's father. So we said she has two children, and then she has a third child. Verse 5. She was yet to have another child, and she named this child Shela, and it was in Chziv, or he was in Chziv, when she gave birth to this child. What's the significance of this, of her, uh, of them being in Chziv, or Yehuda being in Chziv, when she gave birth? So Radak brings an interesting uh, commentary here, and he says the the custom of the time is that the father gives the first son, first child, his name, the mother, the second child, and then it goes back to the father. And the Tanakh needs to explain to us here why does the mother give names both to the second child and the third child? And both those children says that she named them. And so Radak says the reason she had to give the names is because. The father was away at the time. He was off on a business trip. Ramban writes about this perush, that these are words that have no ta'am and no reach. He doesn't like this comment. Uh, another possibility for what's going on here with the Shela and the Chziv is they were they lived, the couple lived in a place called Chziv. Chziv is a place not far from Adulam. So they have to have been in the place of, called Chziv. And therefore she names his, his name Shela. Chziv in Tanakh means the word lechazed is to disappoint, is to let down, and it also has connotations of deception. Deception, disappointment. The word shelah is synonymous with that. We know from the story of the Shunammite woman in Sefer Melachim, who hosts Elisha, when Elisha asks her, what is it that I can do for you? And finally it is revealed that she doesn't have any children. And when he offers to help her bear a child, she says, do, don't, but whatever it is, don't let me down. Al tichazev. She begs of him, lo lechazev, do not deceive her, do not let her down, do not disappoint her. Later on in the story of Elisha, when the child dies, she comes complaining to Elisha, and she tells him, Halo amaltilcha lo Had I not told you, don't let me down? So we know that she uses interchangeably the words lehashlot and lechazev. Kazov and lehashlot, but they both mean... Uh, deception. But I believe the main reason we have the emphasis on the name Shelah, which does mean deception, here is a word that's going to foreshadow the entire events that will take place in this chapter. The story of Yehuda and Tamar is a story of disappointment, it's a story of misleading, a story of deception. Every character in the story, almost every character in the story, somehow misleads someone else. Yehuda and Onan both mislead Tamar. Tamar is going to mislead Yehuda. The entire story is a story of hashlaya. Okay, so the kids grow up. Verse 6. Yehuda takes a wife for his son, for his eldest son, Er, and her name was Tamar. Er, the, old, the firstborn of Yehuda, was bad in the eyes of God, and God caused his death. We're not told what is it that Er did, but from the fact that it says it was bad in the eyes of God, we can deduce that it was something that was uh, 
that couldn't be publicly couldn't be seen. Er had died childless, and therefore in verse eight, Yehuda is going to approach Onan and tell Onan that he he, he should marry his sister-in-law, as the custom of the time of Yibum, the Leverite marriage. I'm reading verse eight. Yehuda then tells his second son Onan, come and marry Tamar so that you can fulfill the custom of Yibum. The classic Yibum, known as Levirate marriage, is a type of marriage in which the brother of a deceased man, a deceased man who died childless, is obligated to marry his brother's widow to secure the widow financially and to perpetuate the name of the deceased. A man who died childless had left no legacy in this world, and the first child of the marriage between the widow and the, generally, the brother-in-law, was considered the offspring of the deceased. Though at this time there's no mitzvah of yibum, it seems that it was a custom of the time. This custom wasn't only just kept with, within Yaakov's family, even though according to Ramban, who's unfamiliar with the ancient Near Eastern text, he says that this is something that Yaakov, that the family of Yaakov had instituted because of their great understanding and spirituality. But we also see this idea exists in the ancient Near East. And in one of the ancient Near Eastern texts, we find the following law. If a woman is still living in her father's house, but her husband has died, as long as she, as she has sons, she may live in whichever house she chooses. If she does not have a son, her father-in-law is to give her to whichever of his sons he prefers. Or if he wants, he may give her as spouse to her father-in-law, meaning if he wants, he may marry. So he has the option of giving it to the children or that he himself, the father-in-law, may marry her. This description is very similar to what we find here in the story of Yehuda and Tamar. It is important to note that the mitzvah of Yibum, as described in Chumash Devarim, chapter 25, limits the Yibum only to the brother of the deceased. Even though the brother of the deceased is considered one of the Yisurei Arayot, nonetheless, it is permitted with the brother. It is not permitted with any of the Yibum, is not permitted with any other of the prohibited relations. Back to our story. Our story is describing events that took place, take place before Matan Sarah. It is based on customs of the time, and, uh, that, and that's what was accepted. Verse 9, let's continue. The second son Onan, upon knowing that the, the offspring of this marriage would not be considered his own, when he would come upon his brother's wife, he would spill his seed to the ground, as to not to give his seed to his brother. And this was bad in the eyes of God, and he caused his death too. So Onan knows that this child will not be considered his own, Therefore, he has no desire to do this kindness and impregnate Tamar. He too is punished by God for his actions. And in verse 11, we hear Yehuda talking to Tamar. So Yehuda tells Tamar, his daughter-in-law, sit as a widow in your father's home until Shelah, my son, grows up. The reason he said this is because he was afraid that Shelah will grow, will, will die like his two brothers. And Tamar went and sat in her father's home. 
Now, we have to stress here that Tamar cannot, re, cannot remarry. Tamar is considered linked to the family. This is what Chazal referred to as Zekukat Yabam. This is a situation that according to Halakha, once the Torah is given, she may not marry anyone else until if she needs to be mitiabem, that's when we need the chalitza. And in this case, where it's before Matan Torah, there's just the customs of the time, it seems clear that she cannot marry anyone else. Therefore, she has to sit in her father's home as a widow. She will continue wearing those widow clothing until until she marries the, her, the son Shela. So she's basically some sort of type of aguna because she cannot marry anyone else, and um, she cannot continue on with her life until Shela will be given to her. Verse 12. The days pass by, and Batshua, the wife of Yehuda, dies. Yehuda is comforted, and he goes upon his the shearer of his sheep, him, together with his friend Chiravi Adulamite, to the two Timnata. Verse 13, Tamar is informed, your father-in-law is coming up to Timna to shear the sheep. Verse 14, so Tamar removes from herself her widow clothing. She covers herself and she sits in a place called a naim, or maybe it's an entrance of the city called a naim, which is on the way. For she has seen that Shelah had grown up and he, and she was not given to him as a wife. Tamar is, we're going to see what, very shortly, what is Tamar's plan here? But when he says that she covers herself, it seems that she's getting dressed up as a prostitute. She's sitting in a very public place. We said she's sitting in a place called Einaim. Einaim could be the name of the city. Einaim can possibly be a name of a public place, a fork in the road where where the prostitutes would sit. And that's why it's called Petach where people would look for the prostitutes. That's the way they would sit. Verse 15. Yehuda sees her. She th- he thinks she's a prostitute because her face is covered. Yehuda doesn't recognize her. Yehuda thinks she's a... Uh, the reason he, she thinks she's a prostitute is either because she's in this very public place called Einaim where prostitutes sit. Maybe she's covering her face in a way that prostitutes would uh, would cover their faces, and he thinks, and therefore he approaches her. Verse sixteen. And he says to her, "Havana," which really means, um, "I want you to, I, I want your services, and I should come upon you." For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law, and she said, "What will you give me in return for my services?" Verse 17, And Yehuda said, I will send you a goat from my flock, a kid goat, a gdi izim. And she said, what will you give me as collateral until I re- you send the goat? And here the reader suddenly says, goat, that sounds really familiar to me. I've heard that word before. We've heard of the goat in our previous story, in the story of Yosef. When the brothers deceive Yaakov, they take 
the coat, they dip it in goat's blood. And we connected that goat to the story of Yaakov connecting Yitzchak with the goat. When he enters the father with the goat that Rivka had prepared. The goat is, is, is the key word that connects the stories. And that's the first sign here in the story that the story is connected to the story of Yosef. And we see the goat here that's in the story. Uh, we don't know yet what, this, what the meaning is, but it will unravel very, very shortly. So she, he said he offers to send her that a, a goat. And she says, well, I, I need some collateral. Now, Tamar had many months to sit and plan this. And, um, and she wants to t- take the right opportunity to seduce Yudah when Yudah won't have anything on him because she wants to take some very personal belongings. Yudah did not plan this and therefore he has nothing on him, doesn't have his wallet or doesn't have anything on him. What does he have? Vayomer, verse 18. What is, what is it that you want as collateral? Vatomer, and she said, she said, I want your chotemet, your ptil, and your mate. What are these three objects? These three objects are equivalent today if we're saying we want someone's driver's license. A personal seal was a piece of stone or clay at some times that had the owner's name engraved in it. It was a sign of his, not only his identity, but also his status. And the seal was attached by a cord around the neck or around the waist. In Shir Hashirim, we have the pasuk, Simeni kechotam alibecha kechotam al zroecha. Put me like a seal on your heart, or a seal around your uh, on your arm. So the chotam is the seal. The cord that attached the seal to the body, to the arm, to the waist, to the to the chest, around the neck, was called a ptil, a cord. In addition, Tamar requests you does staff. One staff also had his identity, was also a sign of identity. It had his name. We, we know that the staff has one's identity from the story of in Parashat Korach when the heads of the tribes each hand in the staff of their, the staff of the head of the tribe to Moshe to put in front of the ark to see which tribe is the chosen one. All of these three things are very clear identification of their owner. Tamar is requesting these three very personal objects. And he gives it to her. And she's pregnant. And he gave her the, these items and she became pregnant. Verse 19. So Tamar gets up, she removes her veil, she returns to wearing her widow clothing. Yehuda had sent a kid goat with his friend the Adulamite to retrieve his belongings from the woman, and the friend could not find her. The friend asked the people who lived there, where is the Kedesha that sat in Einaim? And they said there had been no Kedesha here. And Yehuda said to his friend, let her keep my belongings, lest we become a laughing stock. I tried to find her, but was unsuccessful. 
Uh, notice here that she's not, when he comes to her, he thinks she's a zona, but when he, a prostitute, but when he searches for her, he's searching for a Kadesha. A Kadesha is a prostitute, but it's a much more respectful term. Yehuda, when he asks around her, he doesn't want to use a degrading term because it reflects poorly upon him. So he looks for a Kadesha. He's verse 24. Three months later, Yudah is informed that his daughter-in-law Tamara had committed, committed adultery and she's now pregnant. Yudah said, take her out and have her burnt. Being burnt at the stake in ancient times was considered the most severe of all deaths. Tamara's verdict is very harsh. This verdict, we're familiar with it from Sefer Vayikra, is the punishment of a daughter of a Kohen, daughter of a priest who commits adultery. In Vayikra chapter 21, verse 9, if a daughter of a Kohen commits adultery, she is defiling her father's her father, and she shall be burnt. But why does Yehuda set upon her such a uh, harsh punishment? The Ramban brings two explanations as to why such a severe punishment. One explanation the Ramban uh, suggests is that Yehuda is considered a prominent, respectable person in the land, and therefore the offense of Tamar against his, his family was so great, and she deserved to be burnt. Another addition, uh, uh, Perush that Ramban adds, and uh, I'll, I want to read this in Hebrew and then explain, the Ramban explains what's happening here based on similar customs in Spain in his time. So when a woman commits adultery, she was handed over to the husband, and the husband would decide her decree. Yehuda, as the patriarch of the family, he decided that decree for her. Time and he decided a severe punishment because perhaps uh, that really was considered more respectful towards him. So the difference between the two perushim, according to the first perush of the Ramban, uh, it was an objective. Uh, there was an obje- objective criteria for punishment based on the family. According to the second perush, it's there's not an objective punishment in the book of law of the time, but rather the husband can decide. And the husband here, uh, not being shela, but the but Yehuda, the patriarch of the family, decides a very harsh decree. Another interesting suggestion in the name of Yehuda Hasid is that Tamar was not to be burnt at the stake, but rather a mark was to be branded on her skin as a sign that she is an adulterous woman, sort of like the scarlet letter. Verse 25. <laughs> As she is taken out to be burnt, she sent message to her father-in-law saying, I am pregnant to the man who owns these. Do you not recognize the seal, cord, and staff? This word hakerna is familiar to us. We've heard this word hakerna in the story of Yaakov. When you, the brothers deceive him, they bring the ketonet and say, do you not recognize this? Hakerna, haketonet binchahi imlo. And here, that same phrase is used when Tamar speaks to Yehuda and says, Do you recognize this? Hakerna, identify these objects. And suddenly the reader realizes that there are many connections between this story and the story of the selling of Yosef. 
And it's not just the Hakerna and Hakerna. And it's not just the goat that we saw here and the goat that we saw here. We have several words. We have the, we were told in our chapter in the story of Yehuda that Yehuda is comforted after his wife's death. Vayinachem. That same word appears with Yaakov, only with Yaakov. He is not comforted. We are told here that they send the object, Yehuda tries to send the object, Shalachti, the Gdi, to Tamar, and in the story of Yosef, they send, Yosef, they send the Ketonet to Yaakov. We have the phrase to find, to seek. The man finds Yosef to help him get to his brothers. Here, we're also looking for people. We're told when Yehuda looks for with the help of his friend, he looks for Tamar. He says, Lo matzati. We also have of the phrase, Lechasot. When Yudah tries to convince his brothers to sell Yosef, he says, Ma betza et damo. We're going to have to cover up for his, uh, for his murder. And Tamar, Ki chista paneha. She covers. Let's just read one more verse before we get to the meaning of all these parallels. Verse 26. And Yudah recognized the objects and said, She is righteous than I, for I had not given her my son Shelah, and he did not continue to have relations with her. And Yudah recognized another phrase that we also have in the story of Yaakov, when Yaakov is presented with the ketonet. It says, Vayakira, he recognized. What does this all mean? Yehuda's character in chapter 37, when Yosef is being sold, is a character of what's in it for me. He doesn't, he doesn't save Yosef's life out of compassion, out of morality. He saves it because what's, what, what can be gained? What's in it for me? Yehuda's character as presented in chapter 37 and the beginning of chapter 30, or throughout chapter 38 till our verse that we're about to read now is a character that really looks out for his own interests. Perhaps that's one of the explanations for why we don't even have his wife's name. It's not about his wife that he's interested. It's about the father-in-law. The wife is completely insignificant and the apple the apples don't fall far from the tree. His sons behave in the exact same manner. Onan knows that it's not going to be his child. What's in it for me? And he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't want to. And he refuses to give his seed to his hamars uh, to perpetuate the name of the deceased. Yehuda, later on in the story, after his wife dies, he is comforted. He's out celebrating, completely disregarding. Tamar, who cannot continue on with her life. He is Menucham. He is, has been comforted. And Tamar is still sitting there with her widow clothing. And the next, in the next story, when he goes to a, thinking that Tamar is a prostitute, there is no relationship that objectifies a person more than that of a prostitute, of a man with a prostitute, but completely disregards her, her personality, her identity. Tamar is the opposite. Tamar is one of the finest characters in Sefer Bereshit. Tamar wants to perpetuate the name of the deceased. Tamar, who chooses not to humiliate Yehuda publicly. She does not give away his name. She doesn't give away his identity. She could have easily said, I, if I'm burned for the stake, at the stake, he's the one that got me pregnant. But she says, no, if he owns up, so be it. 
But if not, she is willing to pay a high personal price. And that strikes a chord with Yehuda. Tamar is going to teach Yehuda to see the other person. Tamar is going to teach Yehuda not to just be a taker, but he has to give up something. When Yehuda and Tamar first meet up, the first in the story when he thinks she's a prostitute, the first words she's going to tell, tell her in verse 7, 16 is, Havana, give, give me. And Tamar tells him, Mati Tenli, what are you going to give? And metaphorically, obviously he, he gives these objects, but these objects also have metaphorical meaning. He's giving him up his personality, his identity. The story in this chapter is a story of change. It tells us how Yehuda changes from the Yehuda of chapter 37, of what's in it for me, who's willing to throw his his, to sell his brother as a slave in order to receive some financial gain. How does he change to the Yehuda that we're going to meet at the end of the story? And the change takes place because of Tamar. Indeed, the story, the story is a great story of tshuva and change. Read verse twenty-seven. When we're told at the end of verse, we're told at the end of verse twenty-six that he can no longer sleep with her. Though Yehuda owns up and he justifies Tamar, for he has not given her shela, according to the law of the time, when the brother of the deceased is alive, the widow may not marry the father-in-law. Therefore, Yehuda can't marry Tamar, and neither at this point neither can shela when she had slept with Yehuda. So it seems she will not be able to marry any anyone at. at at all. And perhaps this is one of the reasons she's going to be granted twins. She won't be able to marry, but at least she'll have twins. Verse 27. And she gave birth to twins, and she was, as she was giving birth, one of them stretched out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But then he drew back his hand. His brother came out, and she said, what, what is it that you have broken out? And she named him Peretz. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zarach. Twins is a sign of blessing. We also have twins here because two two men, two of the two sons of Yehuda died, and and she wanted to perpetuate the name. So she has two sons, one for each of the of the husbands that had died childless. Maybe the story is also connected to the story of Yosef. It's possible that Yehuda loses his two children because of his as a punishment for his involvement in the story of Yosef as his punishment for him selling Yosef. He caused thinking. He 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 sold his brother as a slave and he loses his he loses in return as a punishment two children. He pays double for his actions. Um, and a way of the Torah saying that he had done shuva is by granting him twins. The story ends with a very interesting scene between the two babies, Zarach and Peretz, at birth, that Zarach is about to, sticks his hand out of the womb, the midwife puts a red strand around his hand, then he takes back his hand, Peretz pushes through, and Zarach retracts. 
this scene is almost an opposite scene to that of the first few verses of the chapter when we describe the selfish behavior of Yehuda's first son, Er and Onan. Here we have one retracting for his for his brother. It also reminds us a little bit of the scene of Yaakov and Esav, only here we really don't have that animos- that sense of animosity between the two brothers. Perhaps the changed father has an impact on the next generation where they are two brothers and living at who will be living at peace with each other. In conclusion, the story of Yehuda and Tamar in this chapter is a great story. It's a story that's clearly connected to the previous story of Yosef, can't be understood without the story of Yehuda of Yosef. It is a story of change of Yehuda. It will explain to us later on Yehuda's involvement and change of personality when he speaks to Yosef. And uh, it's also a story of two great people with outstanding characteristics like Yehuda and, Tam- and Tamar. Yehuda who takes responsibility. Yehuda who owns up. Tamar who is selfless, com- completely selfless, and just wants to do the right thing. And those two eventually bring Malchut Beit David. Shalom.